Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 76, the vision. Get ready, because this is a big piece of doctrine here. Now, let me just say up front that given all that we know from all the other scriptures, this is not a tool of judgment to point to who's going to the celestial kingdom. But far too often, that's what it becomes the club that we bang over the head. No one should bang themselves over the head and say, I'm not good enough. Of course, we're not good enough right now. Judgment is a very complicated thing, and only a God can truly do it. So why would the Lord reveal section 76? May I suggest that what the Lord does in these scriptures gives us patterns of behavior. Patterns of identifying terrestrial traits in ourselves that we want to overcome, not a tool of judgment to say, oh, you're going to the terrestrial kingdom, but rather to say that's a terrestrial trait, and I don't want to hold on to any terrestrial traits. I've used this analogy in the past. Let me do it one more time because I think this is the best way to look at sections like section 76 that hint at judgment and eternal consequences. In President Kimball's marvelous talk on the false gods that we worshipped, he talked about some researchers that went down to South America to capture some monkeys. They were way too fragile for kind of the snap traps that, you know, you put your leg in and it snaps you. But they were way too intelligent for bait traps. You couldn't just put a banana under a basket and expect to pull the stick away and catch the monkey. They're way too intelligent. So they came up with an ingenious way to catch these monkeys. And I know most of you are sitting there nodding your heads because you know what I'm going to say. They bored a hole in a log or something, and then they filled the hole full of nuts or berries or something that they knew the monkey would like. For me, it would be chocolate. Yeah. (laughs) Sticking the hand in that hole and then grabbing the fruit or the nuts, once you make a fist, you can no longer pull your hand through. And that's when the researchers would come out from hiding, and the monkeys would shriek and go crazy. But the one thing they wouldn't do is what led them into captivity, and that is they wouldn't let go of what they were holding on to. So picture in each of our lives a telestial box, a terrestrial box, and a celestial box. And inside are telestial, terrestrial, and celestial fruits. And let's be honest, we all have our hands in every one of those boxes. That's part of mortality. I have my hand in the telestial box, and I'm holding on to certain telestial fruits. And what I need is someone to point out what those telestial fruits I'm holding on to might be. Because therein is my choice. There is in what I need to work on in mortality, because I have two choices. Either I let go of everything celestial, or I go with it into the celestial kingdom. See, that's not a tool of judgment to decide who's going where, as much as it's a behavior indicator. To be able to say, if you don't let go of that behavior, it may very well pull you into a kingdom that you really don't want to spend your eternity in. 
So let's identify telestial fruits, terrestrial fruits, and celestial fruits that I very much want to hold on to. What are the celestial fruits that I need to make sure I never let go of? What are the terrestrial fruits? And those Latter-day Saints who want to go to the celestial kingdom should really focus on what's the difference between celestial and terrestrial. So Mike and I have spent a lot of time in these podcasts trying to navigate those very difficult waters between terrestrial and celestial, not as a tool of judgment to bang ourselves over the head, but rather a pattern indicator to say, those are the fruits that I need to work on. Those are the fruits I need to let go of. And the other thing we need to understand, first of all, Joseph Smith said he could reveal 100 times what he has revealed about the kingdoms of glory. Well, if you think about that, 100 times section 76 would be larger than the entire Doctrine and Covenants itself. And maybe with that fuller version, we would have a much better indicator as to who's going to what kingdom. But at very best, what we do have is simply a pattern. The Lord has scattered throughout the scriptures this doctrine. And if you want to go back to our podcast on the Sermon on the Mount, 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 14, we talk a great deal about the difference between telestial, terrestrial, and celestial. That is not limited to section 76. It's all throughout the scriptures. And may I suggest perhaps the main point of the temple is to get us beyond terrestrial and into celestial. Membership in the church seems to be come out of the telestial world and into the terrestrial world. And then we go to the temple to get out of the terrestrial world and into the celestial world. So the Lord has scattered these truths all over our lives. And we can't just believe that section 76 is the de facto statement on these degrees of glory. So that being said, let's now look for patterns. Now, going into section 76, he gives a commentary on receiving revelation, which we've mentioned several times. We won't go back there, but the first 10 or so verses are a marvelous commentary on the fact that God is willing to reveal marvelous things to anyone who tunes their soul into the Holy Ghost. I want to emphasize in verse 10, by my spirit will I enlighten them. So we have to qualify for revelation and for the Holy Ghost, and then we will be able to see great things. The next part is, what brings this about? Joseph and Sidney have gone back to the translation of the Bible, and you're going to see that throughout the next several sections. Section 77 is a Q&A on the revelation of John that we find in the Bible. But here, it's really a couple verses in John that springboard them into this discussion about heaven and hell and how many heavens are there. Yeah. John 5.29, at first glance, you might look at this and say, I don't really even see what the big deal is. So this is the discussion that Jesus is having, and he's having this with some individuals that are frustrated with him healing a man on the Sabbath day. He's speaking to these individuals that are questioning him, and he says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, 
and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, there's a lot in there, especially in the language behind the English translation. But Joseph lives in a day where we've had hundreds and hundreds of years separation between Jesus and Joseph's day. We've had an apostasy. We've had a big reformation. And lots of ideas have swirled around the ancient world about the afterlife. And in Joseph's day, these are Protestants in 19th century America, and they're standing on the shoulders of the reformers. And there's this document called the Westminster Confession. And in that document, it basically says, look, there's heaven and hell, that's it. And, you know, you don't even have to have heard of the Westminster Confession to know that that's pretty much the Protestant position, that there's heaven and there's hell. And a lot of questions arise as to what that means. And so in John 5, 29, it says, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Joseph's going to change that to read as follows. Now I'm reading Doctrine and Covenants 76, verse 16 and 17. Speaking of the resurrection of the dead, concerning those who shall hear the voice of the Son of Man, and they shall come forth, they who have done good in the resurrection of the just, and they who have done evil in the resurrection of the unjust. So Joseph's going to change a couple of words. The word life is going to be changed to just, and the word damnation is going to be changed to unjust. And from that verse springs section 76, and it just cracks open the window. And I'm going to go on a little dirt road because I think everything in that verse is going to tie into Joseph Smith's understanding of the afterlife, his understanding of who we are as beings, not only as children of God, but I think it's going to tie into eternal marriage. This is going to tie into what it means to be part of the family of God. I don't know what kind of exposure Joseph has had to Greek, but the New Testament was written originally in Greek, at least the earliest manuscripts we have. And so Joseph's looking at this English Bible, but he's a seer, so he's going to do some really cool things that that are just going to open these things up. John 5.29 does say in the Greek that those having had done good, they will go into the Anastasian Zoes. Anastasian is it's a it's a form of anastasis. And if you think about stasis or standing, and ana um, is is again, can be again, the anastasis or to stand up again. That word anastasian is going to be translated by the translators as resurrection, but the word that we're going to get into is zoes, and that is the word for life. And Joseph's going to change it to just. The other word is those that have done bad, or faula is the word in the Greek, will go into the Anastasian of Chryseos. And Chryseos literally means a distinction or a separation. Now, part of why I'm doing this is I have to justify to my wife all the books I'm buying on on these languages. (laughs) And so in the show notes, I actually go into the whole verse and I translate it out. I've had some of you uh, send messages saying, we want you to geek out more on the language. And I'm like, well, if we do, no one will listen except you. So if you're that person, you're like, give me more language, just go to the footnotes and just start reading where I start breaking this stuff down. Because that word that the King James translators are going to translate as damnation is actually not damnation. And that word is section 76. Section 76 is basically the Lord opening Joseph's mind. He's cracking open this 
ball of light and he's saying, let me show you what Chryseos is. And it's the distinctions. It's the separations. And I do want to say, if it was condemnation or damnation, it would have been katakrino or katakrima. And the kata at the beginning is a prefix to a lot of Greek words that means like we're coming down or we're going down or it's an application of that. And so krino or krisis or krima, and I've done some searching on this too, krima is this judgment, but it's associated with the English word for crime. So if I've committed a crime and I stand before a judge, he has to make a distinction. So all of these words are related. And certainly some of these ideas are up for debate meaning that kriseos, the genitive singular of krisis, which is the separation or judgment or distinction, there's probably somebody out there saying, no, that, that can mean condemnation. And I think it could be, but it's more appropriately, I mean, if you get into the weeds on this, it's more appropriately labeled as a distinction or katakrino, which is used a bunch of times in the New Testament. And in the show notes, I give you links where you can go and you can see all the places in the New Testament where it's used. That's the word used for condemnation. So that word at the end of John 5, 29 is like we're talking about those distinctions. The other word, which I find fascinating, is Joseph's going to change zoe, which is life, and he's going to change it into this word, which means to be just. But I think it's both. Because when the Jews aren't speaking Hebrew as much in the third century, they translate the scriptures into Greek. And the Greek-speaking Jews that lived in the third century, they take this passage that speaks about Eve and literally change it. They change her name from Eve to Zoe, which is that same word for life. Her name is Zoe because she is the mater panton ton zonton. And what that means, a mater is mother. She's the mother panton of all, of all the living ones or the living beings the living ones, the zonton, are in Zoe. They're in Eve, and they they keep the pun, and it's so important to them. Now, this is going to be my packaging, but that word for life, into the resurrection of life, Bryce, I really think as early as this time in February of 1832, Joseph Smith is seeing into the window of what the resurrection of life means, and it's tied to marriage, and it's tied to family, and we read this in the 132nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants. I can't prove it, but I think as early as this time period, February, because of this vision, I think there's so much Joseph seeing, and he's like, I can't give you guys all this stuff. Section 76 is super simplified. I think that he sees Zoes, and he's like, I'm going to trim that down. We're going to go with just, and to be justified means God has made me just. He's declared me innocent because of his atonement. But I think life would be a great translation. That Zoe's to me is a big deal. That's going to be revealed to some select individuals in Nauvoo. So that's just a brief window into those words. I think the critical word is that last word, the genitive singular of Chryses in John 5, 29, the distinctions, because that's what's going on with section 76. Yeah. And you can see that at multiple levels. So at the broadest, we're going to separate good from evil, those who receive a kingdom of glory from those who do not. And then we're going to say, okay, within the kingdoms of glory, what's the separation? Because clearly, as Joseph points out in the beginning, that's a broad spectrum. 
those who receive a kingdom of glory. So then we're going to separate celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. And then later on, Joseph's even going to say, within the celestial kingdom, there's a separation. And there's three degrees within the celestial kingdom. Now, if that's true of every kingdom, then there's at least nine portions of degrees of glory. And so the idea is, let's start broad and see what's the separation between those who receive a kingdom of glory and those who do not. What distinguishes them? And then the rest of section 76 will be within the kingdoms of glory. How do we distinguish them? So let's kind of take that idea, because notice how 76 begins with the personification of someone who was justified, someone who lived a justified life, Jesus. So we start in verse 20, we see the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father and received of his fullness. Verse 22, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all which we give of him, that he lives. He is life. He is light. We saw him even on the right hand of God. Now, just to kind of point out who this man is that we worship as our Savior, verse 24, by him and through him and of him, the worlds, that's a plural word, are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. In other words, Jesus is not just the Savior of our world. Jesus is the Redeemer of all of Heavenly Father's creations. He is the Redeemer of every world that Heavenly Father created. They all claim Him as the Messiah, one Messiah for all of us. The depth of this man And what he has done on our behalf is just hard for us humans to comprehend. But we start with him as the justified one, as the righteous one, the one who followed the Father's path. And then we juxtapose him with someone who is completely unjustified, the one who fell from light and distinguished himself as a fallen soul. So now starting in verse 25, we give an example of someone falling from light, an angel of God who was in authority. Lucifer held the priesthood in the premortal life. He was an angel of God. He was in authority. He was in the presence of God. I think he was a big deal. He light, was light a big bearer deal. Lucifer yeah. goes to Apollia, which is perdition, which is wastage or destruction or ruin. If you look in the Bible dictionary and look up the word Lucifer, you will find that Lucifer means light bringer or shining one. And those of you who speak Spanish, what is the Spanish word for light? It has the same root as Lucifer. He was a man of light who held authority, but he's going to fall from grace and receive no glory in the end. He is the personification of the opposite direction. You can follow Christ into a kingdom of glory, or you can fall from glory, and Lucifer will become Satan. So in verse 26, he's Lucifer, and then in verse 28, he's Satan. He's perdition. He's made that transition from light to darkness. And and I like that word too, uh, Satan, the accuser. The accuser. That's what he is. And now verse 29, he makes war with the saints and encompassing them roundabout. His only 
passion is to destroy God and Christ and those who follow them. And so there's the personification of someone who falls. I think this revelation is exposing perdition for who he is. We live in a world where Satan is using smooth words and we don't even know like who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And I'm reading again, the two towers and probably my favorite chapter in the two towers by Tolkien is a chapter called the voice of Saruman. And I just love this. So after Isengard's taken down, the good guys come to Saruman and essentially Gandalf is like Jesus where he's like, come down, there's a chance for you to be redeemed. And Saruman's up on the tower with Wormtongue and he's in front of all the writers of Rohan and all these armies and Gandalf and everybody. And there's some fascinating stuff about his voice. And as I was reading this, I thought, this is the world we live in today. So here's just a brief part of that book. Speaking of his voice, it says, suddenly another voice spoke low and melodious. It's very sound and enchantment. Those who listened unwarily to that voice could seldom report the words that they had heard. And if they did, they wondered for little power remained in them. Mostly they remembered only that it was a delight to hear the voice speaking. All that it said seemed wise and reasonable and desire awoke in them by swift agreement to seem wise themselves. So they hear his voice and they want it. They want to be wise. And then it goes further. For many, the sound of the voice alone was enough to hold them enthralled. But for those whom it conquered, the spell endured when they were far away. And ever they heard that soft voice whispering and urging them, but none were unmoved. None rejected its pleas and its commands without an effort of mind and will, so long as its master had control of it. I love Tolkien's description of that voice because it was low and melodious, and it was one to pull them in, and they don't even know that they're being pulled in. It's such a fascinating exchange between Saruman. First, he goes and he speaks to Theoden, and he flatters him. He says, oh, Lord Theoden, Lord of the Mark of Rohan. And then he says, oh, worthy son of Thengel, the thrice renowned. He gives him all these great titles and he flatters him and he tries to pull him in with his deceptive lies. And then Theoden rejects him. And then Saruman comes out and he castigates him. He calls him all these mean things. Then Gandalf speaks up. Saruman's in the tower and he says, but you, Gandalf, for you, at least I am grieved, feeling for your shame. How comes it that you can endure such company? For you are proud, Gandalf, and not without reason, having a noble mind and eyes that look deep and far. He just flatters him over and over again. And then he says, are we not both members of a high and ancient order, most excellent in Middle Earth? Our friendship would profit us both alike. Much we could still accomplish together to heal the disorders of the world. Let us understand one another and dismiss from thought these lesser folk. Let them wait on our decisions. For the common good, I am willing to redress the past and to receive you, Gandalf. Will you not consult with me? Will you not come up? Can you see what he's doing? He's essentially saying, I'm here to heal things and I'm the intelligent one. Gandalf, certainly you're the intelligent one. Don't you want to heal things? Don't you want to wave my banner? Join me and come up. As I was reading this, it reminded me so much of the Book of Mormon because Saruman says, come up. And Gandalf tells Saruman, no, why don't you come down? And then he doesn't say the words repent, but he says repent. Listen to what Gandalf says. Will you not come down? 
Isengard has proven less strong than your hopes and fancy made it. So may other things in which you still have trust. Would it not be well to leave it for a while? To turn to new things, perhaps. Think well, Saruman, will you not come down? To turn to new things, perhaps. And then he even offers him freedom. He says, you can be free if you join us. Come back, Saruman, he says in a commanding voice. He urges him to repent. And obviously, uh, Saruman won't. And there's many times where if it weren't for Gandalf standing up saying, hey, this is what we need to do, the people would be sucked into it. And they would be waving the flag of Saruman, this guy that caused all this death and destruction. And I think about that today because how many things in our world are spoken with smooth words, with low and melodious voices that cause us to think that we are to be wise. And one of his big tricks is he tries to tell them, if you listen to me, you're wise, but if you don't, well, you're a warmonger, or you're a hater, or you're not wise. And my point is, section 76 is exposing who Satan is, but the Satan of today in 2021 is more like Saruman, and it's so difficult to tell where the truth is. And we need a Gandalf. We need someone to point it out. And obviously today, that Gandalf is the Savior, but it's also the Holy Ghost and the witnesses of truth, the apostles. And yet, if you look in the world today on some very fundamental issues, the apostles of Jesus Christ are called all the names that Saruman calls Theoden and calls Gandalf and calls Gimli. We live in a world where there's all this mist going on. Yeah. Now, starting in verse 30 of section 76, let's focus on the sons of perdition. And we need to take a moment before we ever get into degrees of glory we need to take a moment and talk about the distinction between those who receive no kingdom of glory and those who receive a kingdom of glory. That's the first distinction. And one of my biggest doctrinal pet peeves is Latter-day Saints have a tendency to speak of the celestial kingdom as a place of punishment. You go to the celestial kingdom if you're bad, and the celestial kingdom is where bad people go to be punished, and that is doctrinally incorrect. You do not receive a kingdom of glory as a punishment for doing something bad. You receive a kingdom of glory for doing something very, very good, something that the sons of perdition will not do. We need to stop thinking of the celestial kingdom as a place of punishment and see it as a place of reward for those who do something really good. So what's the really good thing that will get you a kingdom of glory? What is it that the sons of perdition will not do for which they cannot have a kingdom of glory? And that's the focus of the next several verses. So verse 31, all those who know my power and have been made partakers thereof, you do not become a son of perdition in ignorance. You have to know the truth and choose to walk away from it. They have suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome and to deny the truth and defy my power. They, verse 32, have become sons of perdition. Verse 34, there is no forgiveness in this world or in the world to come. Now, probably the very best definition of what makes a son of perdition is in verse 35. They deny the Holy Spirit after having received it. They deny the only begotten Son of the Father. And then this phrase, having crucified him unto themselves 
and put him to an open shame. They want nothing to do with Jesus, Jehovah, the Son of God, the Messiah. They want nothing to do with Jesus. You know, Bryce, I often thought that it was because of something they've done. And I think my interpretation of this is it's not necessarily that. It's that they don't want the atonement. The, The atonement cannot cleanse you or me if we don't want it. That's right. They reject Christ and his atonement. And that's what makes them a son of perdition. It's not a one-time slip-up, the Holy Ghost inspired me, and I denied the impression that I got from the Holy Ghost. This is a, I do not want to have anything to do with Christ. They crucify him unto themselves. Now, let me show this again in the Doctrine and Covenants so you can kind of see the same theme repeated so the doctrine is clear. Go to section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord's going to talk about the different resurrections. Starting in verse 29, he talks about the quickening or the resurrection of the celestial people. So let's resurrect all the celestial, verse 29. Verse 30, we resurrect the terrestrial. Verse 31, we resurrect the telestial. So now we have resurrected all celestial, all terrestrial, all telestial. Who would be left? Who would then need to be resurrected? The sons of perdition who received a body. Now, verse 32, they who remain shall be quickened. So if you received a body you will be resurrected. But notice what he says next. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they were willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. Now, what is it that they rejected? What is it that they could have received but chose not to receive? Verse 33, for what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. Do you get the very clear reference there? They don't want it. They do not want Jesus or his atonement in any form. They reject Christ and his offering and his gift. So they they will be resurrected, but they will return to their own place. Now, let me show you a fascinating little chain here. Let's start in the Bible. Let's just focus on the New Testament. Go with me to Acts chapter 1, to Judas Iscariot's being replaced in the Quorum of the Twelve. Acts chapter 1 mentions that Judas committed suicide and ended his own life, and what happened to him afterwards? Look at verse 25 that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. He didn't want to be in Jesus's place. Now, let's turn to the Book of Mormon, and we're going to follow that same phrase through the Book of Mormon. Let's go to the allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree in Jacob chapter 5. Go to the very last verse. What happens to the bad fruit in the end. Remember, this whole allegory is to try and get this tree to produce good fruit. In the very end, we gather up all the bad fruit, and where do we send the bad fruit in verse 77? Jacob 5, 77, the good will I preserve unto myself, and the bad will I cast away into its own place. 
Now, notice Jacob chapter 6. Jacob is going to do like a one-verse summary of this whole thing, what he got out of the allegory. And notice what he mentions in verse 3, Jacob 6, 3. How blessed are they who have labored diligently in his vineyard. How cursed are they who shall be cast into their own place. That was Jacob's commentary. What he caught is the distinction between the just and the unjust. That those who labored in the vineyard received the Lord's place, but the cursed are sent to their own place. So now we see it again in section 88. We saw that the sons of perdition will be sent to their own place in verse 32, but go all the way down to section 88, verse 114. Where will Satan spend eternity? Then cometh the battle of the great God, and the devil and his army shall be cast away into their own place. Now, do you see the distinction? That is poetic justice. Their reward is their own place because that's how they wanted to live their life. They wanted to live their life their way. Therefore, God says, your reward is your own place, whatever you can make for yourself, because you cannot have one of God's places. Now, contrast all of this. Go back to the Bible. Let's go to John chapter 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place, one of my Father's places. Now, how do you get to one of the Father's places? Look at verse 6. You follow Jesus's way. If you live God's way, you receive God's place. If instead you insist on living your way by your rules, Heavenly Father says, fine, your reward will be whatever you can make of yourself. Which is why one of the most profound things that C.S. Lewis ever wrote, he said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Do you accept Jesus as Redeemer and Atoner? Do you accept his gift? Now, the distinction, once we get into the kingdoms of glory, one of the things that will describe the celestial people is they do not embrace the gospel, but they accept Jesus as Redeemer. That's the really good thing that gets you a kingdom of glory. Do you remember we did a podcast on section 19 on why there's a hell? And there's an exit in hell. The moment you accept the atonement, the moment you change and you repent, you get out of hell. And going back to John chapter 14, that idea is, in my father's house are many mansions. Come, What are you doing? When are you going to have that prodigal son moment and come to yourself and realize that I cannot do for me what God can do for me? His way is the way. So given the distinction between those who get a kingdom of glory and those who don't, go back to section 76 and listen to what the Lord says. Verse 37, the sons of perdition 
are the only ones on whom the second death shall have any power. That means the Telestia kingdom is not subject to the second death. Verse 38, the only ones, the sons of perdition are the only ones who shall not be redeemed in the due time of the Lord after the sufferings of his wrath. So yes, some of them will go to hell, but in hell they make a change and then they receive a kingdom of glory. The only ones that won't be redeemed are the sons of perdition. Verse 39, he keeps repeating this idea. For all the rest, meaning anyone who gets a kingdom of glory, celestial, terrestrial, and celestial, all the rest shall be brought forth by the resurrection of the dead through the triumph and the glory of the Lamb who was slain, who was in the bosom of the Father before the worlds were. Everyone else gets redeemed. And then verse 43, that Jesus glorifies the Father and saves all the works of his hands except those sons of perdition who deny the Father after the Father. So everyone that gets a kingdom of glory is considered saved. You are saved from the awful monster that Jacob spoke about in 2 Nephi 9. You are saved from hell, from torment, from the lake of fire and brimstone. And that, verse 45 through 48, is that's their own place. What they can make of themselves is nothing. And so the Lord says, the end thereof, the place thereof, the torment thereof, no man knows. Neither was it revealed, neither is, neither will be revealed unto man except to him that are made partakers. I show it to some, but it's so tremendous, I have to shut it right up. The end, the width, the height, the depth, the misery thereof, no one can understand unless you are made a partaker thereof. Therefore, the telestial kingdom is a kingdom of a reward for having done something very good. Excellent, Bryce. A a fundamental message of the Book of Mormon, too, that it's now's the time to repent, right? Um, How many times do we read this? For example, Alma 34, do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end, for after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, if we don't improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. Don't procrastinate. And yet, in this revelation, Joseph sees these degrees, and within the degrees, there's degrees of, of light and glory. What if God's goal is to get of us all there when we're ready? Doctrinally, we would say, well, we don't teach it either way. The church has never announced a definite doctrine on this point, meaning you can advance or you can't advance. Can you go from a celestial kingdom eventually in time and become terrestrial? Can a terrestrial being through eons of time become a celestial being? Some of the brethren have held the view that it was possible. Others of the brethren have taken an opposite view. And we've kind of grouped these up into a couple of categories. One of them is statements in favor of advancement. And then we have another group under the category of statements against advancement. And then, not to be outdone, we've got statements where the matter is left open. I'm going to start by just reading this letter that David O. McKay wrote to a seminary teacher. He said, the church has never announced a definite doctrine upon this point, meaning you can advance or you can't advance. Some of the brethren have held the view that it was possible in the course of progression to advance from one glory to another, invoking the principle of eternal progression. Others of the brethren have taken an opposite view. But as stated, the church has never announced a definite doctrine on this point. That's from the president of the church. Now, I'll just give you a brief sketch of those against advancement. You've got Bruce McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith, and Melvin J. Ballard. 
Uh, probably my favorite statement against it, and I guess just the way he speaks and the, and the his use of language is going to be Bruce McConkie. He gave a talk called Seven Deadly Heresies, but he basically says, hey, this is a deadly heresy. Now, in his defense, I see why. If you preach this doctrine, Bryce, that, hey, we're all going to get there anyway, what happens? That's right. Why work hard? Yeah, why even repent? Right. That's Nehor's doctrine. That's exactly what Nehor taught in the Book of Mormon. Everyone's going to be saved, so why work hard? So you can see why Elder McConkie is saying this is bad and stuff. And he's going to quote section 76, verse 112. But where God and Christ dwell, they cannot come worlds without end. Now, what that scripture may have meant is in that telestial state, as you live a telestial life, you cannot go where God and Christ dwell, but that doesn't necessarily say you can't change your nature and then be welcomed in. I guess why this is important to me, Bryce, is because I can really see this as be, being uh, damaging to relationships. That tool of judgment we right. talked about earlier yeah. it becomes a club that we bang over the head and say, well, we write them off as a terrestrial being or a telestial being, and we have no hope of them ever being a celestial being. Yeah. But it can also go the other way. So if I have this view of, hey, it's all going to be good, we're all going to get there, then why try? I'm going to go golfing. Why do I need to do anything? I can do whatever I want. And so I can see this being damaging on both sides and being used as a tool. So, I mean, there's a bunch more that say definitely no way. Spencer W. Kimball uh, is another one, as well as George Albert Smith. Some that leave it open. We've talked about David O. McKay in his letter. Others, well, if you look at James E. Talmadge's Articles of Faith, we actually give you three different printing editions where you can see that process go from yes to no to maybe. And then you see a group of the brethren that say, hey, they're in favor of advancement. You've got prophets like Brigham Young and Wilford Woodruff. And you've even got Joseph F. Smith, where he opens up that possibility in the 1910 improvement era. So you can read these quotes and have them in your head, at least know about them. I guess the older I get, the more I see Heavenly Father and I see him through the lens of being a father and looking at my children. And and I think, how does God in heaven sort this out? Everyone has these different degrees of light. And so I like the spirit world as this place where we can kind of get our bearings and we can kind of sort things out and listen to the spirit. I see that as the temple and the church. And and so I'm, I'm in that space of being more in that realm of, of being a universalist. But yet, doctrinally, we would say, well, we don't teach it either way. We teach, hey, there's three degrees of glory. God will sort it out. I certainly am a big fan of Alma 34. When's the time to repent? When's the time to invest or plant a tree? Don't procrastinate. Do it. And I come back to that. Get your hand out of the celestial box. Let's not point fingers and decide who's going to which kingdom, but let's look at ourselves and say, am I holding on to celestial fruit? And if so, do I want to? Is it holding me back? Do I need to let go of this? And I think the invitation is to examine our lives. Is there something celestial in your life that you need to let go of? Because it's not making you happy. Is there something in your life that's terrestrial? Let it go. So now let's do that. Let's jump into the distinction. So we've been talking primarily about the distinction between those who receive a kingdom of glory and those who don't. And it really comes down to accepting the Savior. Now, what degree you accept him often determines the degree of your glory. So let's start as section 76 description of the celestial. Again, 
I'm going to emphasize this. This is not a tool of judgment to point to who's going to the celestial kingdom. It's a description of celestial fruits that we need to hold on to. Now, listen to this list, and you'll find that it is not out of your reach. Here is the description of the celestial kingdom, verses 50 through 70. And notice what he says, verse 51, these are they who received the testimony of Jesus, believed on his name, and were baptized. That's the list so far. Believe, receive the testimony of Jesus, believe on his name, and be baptized. Now, what I love is verse 52 is not a description of them, but it's a repeat of the baptismal promise. 52 is a reminder, if you keep your baptismal covenant, this is what will happen. That by keeping the commandments, they might be washed and cleansed from all their sins. See, celestial people are assumed to have sinned. You know, sometimes we think celestial people are a bunch of people walking around that have never done anything wrong. Wrong. And that's just not it. They are. They have assumed that they sinned, but they repented and they kept the commandments and they fulfilled baptismal covenants. And by keeping commandments, they were washed and clean. To go to the celestial kingdom, you have to be washed and cleansed from all sin by the atonement. They receive the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, by him who is ordained and sealed up to this power. That's the simple list. So, so far we've got receive Jesus, believe on his name, be baptized, which will wash and cleanse you and qualify you to receive the Holy Ghost. Now verse 53, if you overcome by faith, So we've got faith and repentance and baptism and following the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you overcome by faith, you'll be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth upon all those who are just and true. Now, I know we're going to read that and say, oh, well, there it is. There's the rub. I have to be just and true. But flip over to verse 69. They are just men made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. They do what they can to fully embrace the Savior's teachings. They fully accept Jesus. And when they fall short, they repent and they try harder. And given enough time, they are going to progress and become like him. And then he will make them perfect and just and true. By the way, verse 58, I think that is just a little bit of hint of zoes. These are individuals that have life, and they're going to be called gods. And I don't think Joseph's explaining what's going on in 58, not till later with King Fault discourse. But this idea of theosis or demonization was an early Christian teaching that Jesus, who was God, became man so that men could become gods. And the early Christian thinkers are using this language and discourse. It was lost in the apostasy. We link some of these quotes in the show notes for you to go and read them. I know that for me growing up in California, Bryce, I actually had people tell me I wasn't Christian because I believed in this idea of divinization or theosis that we could become like God. I think sometimes it's a, we, we bring it down, we make it a little bit common when people say, well, you can become gods that can have your own worlds. I look at it as I become like unto the Father, meaning 
that he wants to give me what he has, all that he has. And, and that is a biblical doctrine. The early Christians understood this. And the opposite is the key. He will give you all that he has as we fully embrace all that he is. And now that's, again, how much of Jesus do you accept? If you embrace the fullness of Christ and become like him, then you will inherit the fullness of the highest glory that he can give. The celestial kingdom is for those who want to be all that Jesus is. And yet, it's going to take a long time to walk down that path. It's going to take repentance and baptism and forgiveness and renewing of covenants and a lifelong pursuit. But the heart is, I want to fully embrace all that Jesus is. I want to forgive like he forgives. I want to be kind like he is kind. And I'm trying to be like Jesus. That's who goes to the celestial kingdom. Those who fully embrace who he is and what he is. And they do it a step at a time. I feel inclined to remind you of 2 Nephi chapter 28, verse 30. Read that carefully. We progress line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. If you receive, you get more. And then read 2 Nephi 31, verse 20. If you are progressing and advancing, and then you die, that's the end he's Nephi speaking about. The Father says, you're going to make it. You're going to continue to progress. You're going to get there. The celestial path is a long path of doing everything I can to become like Jesus. So there's the first distinction within the kingdoms of glory. I, I love that. If you look in section 76, in verse 53, they overcome by faith and they're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And then 54 says, they are they who are of the church of the firstborn. They are they into whose hands the Father has given all things, their priests and kings who have received of his fullness, even of his glory. Priests of the Most High, after the order of Melchizedek, and then we get into the order of Enoch and the order of the sons of God, and then they, verse 60 will overcome. These are kings and priests, it says, but I also like to call this out, that they're kings and queens, priests and priestesses. The end of their celestial role is kings and queens like Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. I love this quote by Hugh B. Brown, where he said, celestial marriage enables worthy parents to perform a transcendentally beautiful and vital service as priest and priestess in the temple of their home. This training will help to prepare them for the exalted position of king and queen in the world to come, where they may reign over their posterity in an ever-expanding kingdom. And that idea of kingdom is tied into marriage, that as you have children, that you become king and queen, priest and priestess, over your posterity. There's a lot more quotes we give you in the show notes that you can read, but I love this one by Joseph Fielding Smith, where he says this. He says, the main purpose of our mortal existence is that we might obtain tabernacles of flesh and bones for our spirits, and that we might advance after the resurrection to the fullness of the blessings which the Lord has promised to those that are faithful. They have been promised that they shall become sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and if they have been true to the commandments and covenants the Lord has given us, to be kings and priests and queens and priestesses, possessing the fullness of the blessings of the celestial kingdom. 
That's a, I just love that. I love that. And I again, that's a distinction within the celestial kingdom. Not all celestial people will embrace that extent. And I don't know why we haven't we, the Lord has not revealed what are the difference within the celestial kingdom, but there's a desire to be celestial, and then there's a desire to be like Heavenly Father, to be kings and queens. And it's not a switch that ma- magically gets turned on someday. It's something that we start today. We start on our earthly journey when we become fathers and mothers and husbands and wives, and that we embrace the covenants and we begin to ad- develop the attributes of an eternal father and an eternal mother. And this really does crack open the window to the great revelation on Sinai in Exodus 19, right around verse 5 and 6, where the Lord says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then he gives them, these are the commandments that you've got to live to kind of get in that space. This is tying in our day, the latter-day seer, to a great and mighty seer of antiquity, Moses. And what we're seeing is we're seeing these threads being connected through the restoration. Yeah, I love it. Now, the next distinction, 12 verses in section 76 describing terrestrial people. Clearly, that can't be the Lord's intention to give us a definitive list of what it's like to be terrestrial. Go to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is trying to get us beyond the terrestrial law. And so as Jesus says, hey, do you remember how I told you not to commit adultery? Now I'm telling you not to think adultery. There's a distinction between terrestrial and celestial. May I suggest that if you will go to the temple and embrace temple covenants, the whole point of the temple is how do you get out of the terrestrial and into the celestial? And so, section 76 is not the place to fully understand who goes to the terrestrial kingdom. But what is mentioned here is faithful to a point, not all the way. That's what he seems to emphasize. So, in verse 74, he says, "...who received not the testimony of Jesus in the flesh, but afterwards received it." Now, I know some people push that to an extreme and say, if you reject the gospel on earth and then you accept it in the spirit world, the highest you can go to is the terrestrial kingdom. But I just can't believe that that's what it means. There's way too much involved in what goes on in the spirit world and what goes on here. But they were honorable. They were good. So they embraced Jesus, just not all the way. And I think that's what you're saying in verse 76. They receive of his glory, but not of the fullness. Don't go all the way and become. Notice verse 79. They're not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. So terrestrial people are good, honorable, law-abiding, kind, gentle people, but they don't fully embrace all that Jesus is. Maybe they don't forgive like Jesus forgives, and they allow resentment to stay in their heart. Or pride can be a terrestrial sin. And again, we're back to the Sermon on the Mount where he's describing terrestrial people have a tendency to love those who love them and hate those who hate them, while celestial will love everyone. So there's always that, where is your heart? Is your heart kind of holding back and not fully embracing the gospel, not fully embracing Christ? Bryce, I think that really fits a lot of our listeners. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're trying to read the scriptures, you're trying to follow Jesus. And I certainly read this list of these terrestrial folk, and I'm like, that's pretty much me. Like, are we ever really valiant enough? Have we ever really done all we can? And so 
I'm maybe I'm just talking to myself here, but I'd, I'd like to extend a hope that that it's going to be okay. I love verse 60. Speaking of the celestial, they shall overcome all things. I can't do it, but Jesus can. But I want to. I want to. And so for me, I, and I don't know, Bryce, but for me, I'm like, man, I think this is where as Latter-day Saints, we beat ourselves up with these verses. Like and it you becomes, said, again, a tool yeah, of judgment. Yeah, like you said, we, I don't think this is supposed to be a weapon, right? It's supposed to be an invitation to look at the things. Where am I not fully valiant? And again, I keep coming back to that idea of grace for grace. With the light that you have, do you see what you need to change? And if you'll change that, he'll give you more light and allow you to see other things that you didn't see before. Is your heart set on, I want to be better? I want to grow. I want to be all that Jesus is. And I know I'm not right now, but I want it. Versus, I think the terrestrial are those who say, I'm very content to not be all that I could be. Joseph Smith said something to the effect of, the nearer a man approaches God, the clearer are his views. And I think if you're reading these verses and you're like, well, that's me, I'm pretty much toast. I think what the Spirit could be saying is, see yourself and see what you can do better. And and I think really that is what the temple is. The temple is the Lord saying, hey, we need to step it up. And so sometimes that can be daunting, but I think I'm back to verse 60. Hold on to his hand. They shall overcome all things. I love verse 60. That's my hope. Yep. And I love Heber J. Grant said the following, nobody lives up to his ideals. But if we are striving, if we are working, if we are trying to the best of our ability to improve day by day, then we are in the line of our duty. If we are seeking to remedy our own defects, if we are so living that we can ask God for light, for knowledge, for intelligence, and above all for His Spirit, that we may overcome our weaknesses, then I can tell you, we are in the straight and narrow path that leads to life eternal. We have no need to fear. I love that. That's the idea is just hold on to Jesus, live up to that light day at a time, and eventually we're going to get there. We're going to overcome all things. So there's the celestial and the terrestrial. Now, the last one is telestial. And the main description we get is towards the end, verse 100, some of one, some of another, Verse 101, they receive not the gospel, neither the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets, neither the everlasting covenant. So we've seen that they will accept Jesus as Redeemer, but they won't incorporate the gospel into their life. They may believe he's Redeemer, but that's as far as they go. They don't live his teachings. Verse 103, they are liars, sorcerers, adulterers, whoremongers, and those who love and make a lie. Now, again, that's not a description of while they're in the celestial kingdom. Those are the attributes of earth that led to a celestial kingdom. To be in the celestial kingdom, they must accept Jesus. But the path is often a path of lying and deceiving, of immorality, of carnal sins, that verse 106 leads them to hell where they suffer the wrath of the Almighty. And while they're in hell, they're given a chance, and that's when they will bow the knee and accept that Jesus is the Redeemer. Unfortunately, 109, the celestial kingdom is filled with an innumerable host, like the firmament of, of heaven. Verse 110, 
all of these shall bow the knee. Now, I think there's two bowings of the knee. One is before I go into hell, and one is when I come out. And so there's the path that kind of leads to telestial. It's a very carnal path. It's a very natural man-laden path. It's giving in to all the appetites of the natural man and letting the animal have control over us versus letting the spirit have control over us. And with that, we've kind of taken a brief look at the distinction between the different kingdoms of glory. And I remind you, Joseph Smith, he's a 26-year-old getting this revelation. He's standing in this room in the John Johnson farm. And we know from the historical record, Philo Dibble writes that Joseph wore black clothes, but at the time of this vision seemed to be dressed in an element of glorious white and his face shone as if it were transparent. But I did not see the glory attending Sydney. Joseph appeared, Philo writes, as strong as a lion, but Sidney seemed weak as water. And Joseph, noticing his condition, smiled and said, Brother Sidney is not as used to it as I am. I love that. Joseph experienced a change in his countenance. He sees these visions that the early Christians spoke about and wrote about. There are these other traditions out there that are actually very much in line with Latter-day Saint theology and extra-biblical texts shows that there were people that believed in Jesus, but they also believed in some of these ideas that we see in the Restoration. These were swirling around in early Christian literature in what are called apocalyptic texts. And over time, as the Bible became solidified, you know, as they put together this corpus of literature that we now call the Bible, uh, it didn't exist prior to like 367. I mean, by 367, we get a list by Athanasius where he comes up and says, hey, we're going to go with this list of 27 books for the New Testament, and we're going to go with these books for the Old Testament, and, and that list doesn't really become solid right then, but over time it does. These other texts just kind of fell by the wayside. Some of them were destroyed. And apocalyptic literature, now this is a generalization, so bear with me, but apocalyptic literature is this group or this corpus of literature that is before Jesus and after Jesus, and it's a group of people that have religious ideas that are proclaiming things against the establishment. They want the temple to be something that they envision that it could be, but it isn't. And I think in a sense, Jesus stands in this vein of light. Jesus walks around the temple. He goes to the temple. But then there, there are statements where he says that they're making his father's house a house of merchandise. You can see Jesus where he talks about it being a place where it's a den of thieves, but it's his father's house. And so to me, Jesus is kind of walking in this vein of light of many of the authors of these apocalyptic texts and visions. And so there's so many of these, but I want to just share how some of them viewed the heavens. It was pretty common in a lot of these visionary experiences uh, for there to be multiple heavens. And there's a text called Third Baruch, and it's a Jewish work with Christian interpolations or injections into the text, according to one scholar. And in this text, Baruch is led to the fifth heaven where he sees the entrance to the heavenly temple, but he's unable to proceed any further. And as he sees this, he sees a gate 
and he has a heavenly guide that stands there with him at the entrance of the gate, and he sees three groups of angels approaching the entrance into this level of heaven. One group bears baskets filled with flowers, which represent the merits of the righteous. And another group carries partially filled baskets containing the deeds of the people of middling character. And then he sees a third group bearing no baskets at all. And he laments as he sees that these people represent the wicked. Now, while I certainly don't think the third Baruch is section 76, and you know it's not perfectly paralleled, I find this interesting. There's this threefold separation in third Baruch, and it's not unlike the threefold separation contained in section 76. And then we get later to section 131 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord shares that there are three divisions in the celestial kingdom. There are many distinctions in these glories, and these ideas were taught and understood by many people at the time of Christ. And there's a group of texts called the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, and it's a Christian work, but it's drawing on Jewish sources, at least we think. And within this corpus of literature, each of the different patriarchs have what's called a testament. For example, Levi, in the eighth chapter of the Testament of Levi, he's brought up into heaven and he's clothed in sacred vestments. And every single article of clothing is attached to an abstract noun in the genitive. So for example, it's not just the holy robes he receives, but it's the robe of the priesthood. And then he gets a crown, but it's not a crown. It's a crown of righteousness and a breastplate of understanding and the garment of truth and so forth. And these genitives shift the focus from priestly garments as required elements to the larger meaning of the priesthood, meaning that in the Testament of Levi, he's He's clothed with these sacred vestments, but as he's clothed, each article of clothing is trying to teach you what the clothes mean. And there was some of this stuff going on in early Christianity, this idea of ascension and being invested or clothed. That's where we get the idea of sacred vestments and pretty much every religious tradition, whether it's Greek Orthodox or Catholic or Jewish in Islam and I'm not an expert on all religions, certainly, but if you go to some of these other churches, you see that the priest, in a sense, is inviting you ritually to come into God's presence, and they're wearing sacred vestments. For example, I'll I'll use the Greek Orthodox tradition. At the altar is the priest, and he's clothed in sacred vestments, and behind him is this iconostasis. And it's it's kind of like, uh, the best way I can describe it is it's like the veil in King Solomon's temple. And behind the iconostasis is where they're going to invoke the power of God to bless the Eucharist so that it changes or so that it becomes something that we take to be brought into God's presence. And a lot of times behind the iconostasis, there's the vision of the tree or as it were, the mother of God. And the sacred vestments are tied into this, meaning that that is how we have access to God. Well, the genitives that are attached to these articles are teaching us what they mean. You see, it's not about the vestments themselves, but it's about what they do to us. So for example, the robe of the priesthood, or the crown of righteousness, or the breastplate of understanding, or the garment of truth are invitations for me to change who I am. And if you've been to the temple, a lot of what I'm saying is probably making more sense 
Now, in some of the Enoch literature, Enoch is not only clothed, but he's anointed. He's clothed in glorious garments, and he becomes like the angels. As far as changes to the visionary, we referenced earlier Philo Dibble's account of Joseph Smith changing. Well, in the Ascension of Isaiah, so the Ascension of Isaiah is this text that talks about Isaiah's ascent into the multiple heavens, a whole bunch of them. And what I find fascinating is as he ascends, part of the Ascension of Isaiah in the seventh chapter is very similar to section 76. In section 76, Joseph and Sidney see the Savior, but then they also see the forces of darkness. And if you go to the seventh chapter of the Ascension of Isaiah, this is what we read, that Isaiah sees Samael and his hosts, and there was fighting, great fighting therein, and the angels of Satan were envying one another. And he has this psychopomp or this angelic guide that's guiding him through the levels of heaven. And so Isaiah turns to this angel or this guide and says, what is this? What's going on? And there's this big war happening and he asks about it. And the angel turns to him and says, so has it been since the world was made until now. And this war will continue until he whom thou shalt see will come and destroy him. And so I find this awesome. Because in the Ascension of Isaiah, we have so many similarities between his experience of ascent and visionary experiences and the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, or what is known as the vision. Now, we didn't mention this earlier, but Brigham Young said that many people in the church really struggled when this became public and it became published and known because it went against their tradition. And their tradition was that there was heaven and there was hell, and that's it. And that's another reason why I like reading some of these extra biblical texts, because it shows that there were people that believed in Jesus, but they also believed in some of these ideas that we see in the restoration. And there's more. There's, a, there's so many more. Uh, one of the fun ones is in the Ascension of Isaiah, Isaiah is given a book. And he's told to read it and get those deeds down and understand that this book contains the deeds of the children of Israel and that he's to write this down. Now, what I find really interesting, if you do a a real careful reading of section 76, over and over again, the Lord tells Joseph, hey, write this down. Verse 28, while we were yet in the spirit, the Lord commanded us that we should write the vision. And then in verse 80, and now this is the end of the vision, which we saw of the terrestrial and the Lord commanded us to write while we were yet in the spirit. And then in verse 113. This is the end of the vision which we saw, which we were commanded to write while we were yet in the Spirit. But great and marvelous are the works of the Lord and the mysteries of his kingdom, which he has showed unto us, which surpass all understanding. That verse, verse 114, tells me that there's so much more that Joseph is not able to communicate to us, that it surpasses our understanding. I'm grateful that we have these translations of these texts so we can just go and read them and see them and know that I think Joseph Smith is standing in this tradition. He's standing in this tradition as a visionary. He's inviting us into a different space. When we get to Nauvoo, he starts to put some of these pieces in place, teaching us more about life and the temple and sacred vestments and what it means to be a king and a queen in the world to come that the early Christians spoke about and wrote about. Um, This is not the main point 
of section 76. And if I was teaching a gospel doctrine lesson, I would not go there and, and cite this stuff, but it's good to know about. I think it's just good as a as a follower of Christ, it's just good to know that there are these other traditions out there that are actually very much in line with Latter-day Saint theology and thought, and that at 26, Joseph Smith is just getting so much and can only give us so much. Like I said, so many people struggled when this revelation was given because it went against their tradition. Yeah. And what I hope you take away from this podcast and from your study this week of Section 76 is not a tool of judgment that no one should bang themselves over the head and say, I'm not good enough. Of course we're not good enough right now, because the process of mortality is to decide where is it that you want to go and what are you on the path to become. If you really want to follow the Savior and embrace all that he is, that path eventually will lead to the celestial kingdom. Because he is good enough. And he will make us perfect. So may we all decide today, how much of what he is do I want to become? The fullness, everything that he is, a part of that, or just the bare minimum, or none of it. Those who want to embrace the fullness of who he is will receive the fullness of his glory. And with that, we will see you next week when we cover sections 77 through 80. Have a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.